I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Fred Merworth, the winemaker and owner of Herman J. Veemer Vineyards in the Finger Lakes of New York. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good to see you. Thank you for having me here. So your family was uh, dairy farmers. I grew up on a fairly big dairy farm in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, my grandfather started the farm. My father took over the, the dairy um, under strange circumstances. In the 60s, my grandfather had a farming accident, and my father had to step in Right. Actually, he was in college. He had to come home from college and take over control of the dairy while my grandfather was recovering. And from that point on, really grew methodically in terms of the number of cows, acreage. And it was looking back and seeing my family evolve within the dairy, um, I can see similarities to what we're doing now um, in terms of a slow methodical growth. And I look back at what my parents and my grandparents did in terms of creating a, a homestead and um, uh, a way of life around the dairy and knowing that to bring family in and keep family active in it, you had to grow and you had to become more than 60 cows. So when my family ended up closing the, the dairy farm in 1988, uh, we were over 400 head of cattle. And... Um, I grew up in that. I was um, nine years old when when they they closed the the dairy in 1988, and I had been fairly involved in in the farm. and And my older sisters and my older cousins all were intimately involved in in taking care of animals. and I was responsible for the chickens. and I think those experiences, being part of a family farm, um, I still see that. In, in me today and, and, and what I'm, I'm looking for. And I think we have, we've grown to a point where, where we feel comfortable that we can do this as two families. But it's actually really two businesses. Absolutely, it is. It's an interesting business because we are three units in a way. We're the winery, the nursery, and, and the vineyard. And, and there's no other companies really in the U.S. who are doing those three. I mean, you know, Kendall Jackson was in the nursery business and and they got out of it. It's a hard thing to take those three aspects and and meld them together and be successful in all three. And this is something, having trained under Herman and, and worked for him, I can see that you have to be intimately involved in every aspect and you have to be very attentive to the details of what you do to make all three in sync because you can't take January off. That's not an option. And as soon as the grape harvest is finished in November, you go right on to the nursery harvest. You know, so you constantly are in your business. So Herman had been a winemaker in the Finger Lakes, and then he had started up a, a vine nursery to propagate vines for other wineries in the 1980s. That's correct. Herman came to, to the Finger Lakes in 1967 and did an internship. When that was over, he went back to Germany, um, and Walter Taylor, who was a, a very interesting character in the region and, and family was very influential at the Taylor Wine Company, 
knew that this young German had worked and, and was very well trained, went to Germany and brought Herman back to be his winemaker. Um, that was 1968. So Herman and Walter really started Bully Hill in 1968 from just a few barrels. And and by the time that Herman was fired in 1981, you, you know, they were doing 60,000 cases. And looking at Herman's evolution through that company and, and his relationship with Walter, and um, he took a lot of experience out of that and really changed the way that he saw the grape industry. He became a pioneer in the region kind of almost by accident, I believe. You know, having come here to work for Walter Taylor, he wasn't planning on staying, but started to see the potential. And within working for Walter Taylor, didn't have the opportunity to to really explore the way that he felt he could. And so he bought the farm in 1973 Planted in 1974 with just a few acres of lots of random varieties and started to see he could make something really serious. He had tasted some wines from Dr. Frank and some other small growers and said, I can, I can do this. And what, after he was fired in 1981, which is a, a really funny story, Herman went back to Germany to visit his parents and he got a knock on the door and it was a telegram uh, that Walter Taylor had sent him for Christmas and it said, thank you very much for your your time and your energy, but as of this date, your contract is terminated. And Herman was so excited because he had things set up and he was able to just come back to the States and basically start fresh. It was like a Christmas present. Yes. Merry Christmas. We have the telegram hanging in the winery. Um, and Herman references that, you know, in, in looking back his career, he references that experience as a, obviously a pivoting moment, but a, a time for that just allowed him then to be free to do what he wanted to do. Herman was a, a German. Yes. Her- Herman uh, grew up in the Mosul. His father was um, in charge of the experimental station in Berncastle, Germany. And that institute was basically responsible for propagating plant material for the Mosul growers through the 50s and 60s. So after World War II, you know, the vineyards are not in great shape. They had an opportunity to refocus the plant material around different rootstocks, different clonal selections. And his, his father was really instrumental in searching for material, providing it to the growers. Herman grew up in that trade and paid his way through Geisenheim by hand grafting and went to Neustadt, continued his training and just paid his way through through that kind of work. Um, his mother's side of the family had very old vineyards in Traub and Traubach, were just grape growers. He, he really enjoys grafting and, and the pursuit of producing plants and so as he was setting up the winery, he started to set up his plant nursery and used the plant nursery to basically pay for the setup of the winery. But I mean, does it seem unusual to you that someone that was kind of that dialed into the culture of German wine ended up in New York making wine? I, I, it is a little strange. I mean, what do you think his motivation was for saying like, yes, before there's really any kind of wine industry in this region, I'd like to go? Herman's family had a, an old vineyard manager, and the vineyard manager came to, to Herman at one point in his training and said, you know, there's a lot of sisters and uncles and people involved in this estate, and your best opportunity is to not get involved with it. So again, it kind of set Herman free to say, okay, where in the world do I want to be? He didn't really care for staying in the Mosul for whatever reasons. And he thought about going to Italy or going to South Africa, or he ended up doing this internship and then falling in love with Hammondsport and the the craziness of Walter Taylor and Bully Hill. And there were celebrities and airplanes coming in. And, you know, it was, it was just a, a fun time to be in that industry. It was, and so for Herman, it was very exciting. Um, you know, as, as a young German who could barely speak English, it was fun. 
So what do you think some of the takeaways of the Bully Hill era was? I know that's before the time you met Herman, but was there something you think he sort of picked up from that that became important later in terms of his own plans? His takeaway from working with Walter Taylor was seeing Walter focus on the marketing and sales and being just an incredible marketer and Herman despising sales and marketing. So they were very similar personalities in one way, but they viewed the wine industry very differently. So his takeaway when he started was sales and marketing is critical, but that's, that's not him. And when he was finally able to work on his project in 1982, after being fired in 81, he focused so hard on the production and getting the production right. But it's an interesting time period because, you know, if you're thinking about late 60s, 70s, that's also kind of when California's getting going again, too. But when you look at the two regions, I feel like the Finger Lakes is still in infancy. It is in its infancy. And New York has been an important grape grower region for, for a century and a half. And it is farmers who move from other ag products into grapes, mostly into hybrid and native varieties. And as the Taylor Wine Company was riding this wave of popularity and then started to go downhill, the grape growers were really left with no market. That was one of the doors that opened. The other door was the Small Winery Act in 1976, so it allowed small wineries to just open up a retail shop and, and make wine, and that really expanded the industry. It was Herman and Dr. Frank who started to get growers interested in European varieties, Riesling, Chardonnay, and proving that they could grow in this region because it, it's a, it is a cold region. And, and we look at our, our climate, we look at our region as a 12-month vintage. It's a very, I think, different way to look at it from, say, California, that what happens in the middle of January can be more influential on your vintage than what happens in, in September. If you have one night where it is minus 15 that hurts the vines, that cuts your crop, that can show through not just through that vintage, but for the next vintage. And even sometimes two years later, where you're cutting out your trunks and you're bringing up renewals and you're starting your vines over in a way, you've lost that year's production, you lose the next year's production. Those are experiences that Herman had, the early Dr. Frank had, the early growers all had. And we, and we still have those Every few years, the viticulture has evolved and has been developed around that idea with our hilling up and hilling down. Sorry, I don't know what that means. Hilling up and hilling down of our plants. So we take plows through the vineyards and plow dirt up onto over the grafts to protect that union. Because if, if you lose your top growth, if you lose your buds, the vine will come back. It will shoot new canes up. If you lose the graft, your plant is dead. And, and so working with all grafted plants, as soon as you lose your graft, you take a loss, 15, 20%. I mean, we've had years where vineyards in the Finger Lakes have had up to 35% vine kill. Those are traumatic experiences. Those are, those are things that through the 70s and 80s, people are like, I don't know if I should be growing Riesling or, or Chardonnay. The pioneers of the region were looking for varieties vinifera varieties that could make it through a, a very cold experience. The other part of it is most of the vinifera was centered on Cuca Lake. And the, until Herman planted, there was really nothing on Seneca Lake, which is the largest and, and deepest of, of the lakes. And this whole kind of pioneering spirit of looking for great vineyard sites and what do you plant? You know, what rootstock do you use? You know, you, you just start grafting things and putting them in the ground and saying, well, that didn't work and, you know, I probably shouldn't try Merlot again, you know. But that doesn't mean Merlot shouldn't be grown in the finger legs on a certain site. It takes years and trial and error and, and heartbreak to, to come to those realizations. And the best sites and trying to connect a plot of land with a variety that belongs on it. 
Herman and Dr. Frank both started vine nurseries to take that into action and also for other wineries to yeah. say like, yes, we have material. We're thinking about what goes where and we can also sell you some material. That's correct. Both of them started nurseries for that exact role. It was to help themselves to be creative and to, to turn over plant material quicker. It was also to help the region. So Herman's a guy that, you know, looking at his life from afar, never having met him, it's surprising to me that he chose to, to go to New York, but he really made a go of it and actually had effectively two careers, or you could even say three careers there. Um, you're also a guy that, you know, surprises me that you went to New York. And so how did that end up happening? How did you end up working with Herman? So I, I started with Herman in 2001. Um, and before that, I went to Cornell in the Cornell Ag program. My family still had the farm and came home from freshman year and my family made a decision. We had a, a big family meeting and decided that, um, that we were selling the farm. And I was in horticulture and I went back to Cornell. I'm like, what am I going to do with horticulture now? I mean, that was a big shock for me going back to our previous discussion, the sense of place um, and family around that place um, had, had significantly changed um, just over that winter break. And it was the best move for our family. But looking a little selfishly here, it, it that that was very hard on on me because I knew that I was going back to that farm. And then going back to Cornell in January, I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? Um, I moved into ag business, which was just an easy move across the hallway and kind of worked through that. And I kept with my, up with my German classes and took a, as many other courses as I could. And at one point I'm like, I, I need to figure something out here because that path is closed now. So I spent a semester in, in Germany in 1999. And the second week we were there, the program I was studying with had organized a trip into Alsace. And the winery we went to was Emily Bayer in Eggishheim. Very small producer, very old domain. And Christian, who was 23, I was 21 at the time, had just taken over the winemaking and showed us around, did a, a tasting for us. His grandmother made bread. And he connected. There were three of us who just followed him around. It was like, this is just amazing. How did your family remain here through, it ended up being 14, he was 14th generation to be making wine in that domain. How did your family make it through everything that Alsace has been through? And I, I took that back to, to Freiburg and I thought, man, you know, the cultural experience, the historical interplay that the vines and the wine have with his family is kind of what I was looking for. When I came back to Cornell, I took three courses and I'm like, okay, that's a start. Um, and after graduating, I planned on moving to Germany and just it, timing wasn't right. And I said, you know, should I go back to school and learn winemaking or should I just pack up and move to, to Germany? I, I had a few months to try to figure this out. And I decided to move, that I wanted to move to Germany. So I, I contacted five estates. And I, I sent my resume, snail mail, and, and hadn't heard back. And finally, I, I remember tasting Herman's wine on one of the courses at Cornell. So I, I cold called Herman and talked to the business manager, who's still our, our business manager now, Andrea. And she's like, well, you know, he might call you back. And so... That night, Herman called me back and he's like, you know, what are you looking for? I'm like, you know, I, I actually, I'll be honest, I, I want to go to Germany and train. I'm calling you to, to see if you know anybody in Germany who I could train under. And he's like, well, you know, I've been away so long. I don't know anybody. But if you want to come up and, and talk, we'll, we'll see what we could do here. So I drove up in the middle of dead of winter and met with him. And he was really skeptical. He, he liked that I was, grew up on a dairy farm. Um, he, I had a, an Audi and he was very skeptical that I pulled in an, in an Audi and I'm, I'm like, you, you have an Audi too. What's, what's, you know, cause it was a nice car. Cause it was like, a nice car. You're not going to deal with this farm life. If you drive a car like that, it was, that was the, that was his thinking. The gist. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I went back and I'm like, I guess that went okay. 
And he called me back a day later. He's like, if you want to come here and train, we'll create something. You'll get to see the whole business from pruning and tying to the nursery, to the retail, winemaking. You'll get to see everything that we do here. And so I, I started there March 22nd, 2001. And as I started to work with it, the first few days was just debutting. I just stood there for nine hours and just debutted rootstock. And, you know, I, I remember my hands just hurting. I mean, just throbbing at the end of the day. I'm like, I, I don't know if I can keep doing that every day. And we just went in and just debutted for weeks. And I didn't get into the winery until July, actually into the winemaking process until July. And it was in talking with him. Well, I found out later that he knows a ton of people in Europe, whether it's in the glass industry or corks or nursery trade or in the Mosul or Rheingal, Champagne. So we have now still a good laugh about that. Because he could have hooked you up in Because he could totally hooked me up. But he yeah. said he couldn't. No, yeah. He... And I understand why. I mean, he, he didn't want to recommend some kid off the street and who wanted to be in the wine trade, you know, wanted to learn the wine industry if he didn't know who who I was. Right, but then he offered you a job the next day. So something must have clicked or something. That's the, you know what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely. Like, it sounds like he wanted to have you around to bust your balls a little bit. Totally. Because like, it sounds like he's a ball buster. He the, is. The Audi story makes me think this guy's a ball buster. Yeah. And he's like, oh, here's a chance for me to bust this guy's balls. And yeah. so may as well just call him back to have him every here every day. Sounds like what happened. That, that's right. And, and Herman, he gave people chances and very few people lasted with him. So I think it was par for the course for him to be like, yeah, you want to come here for a couple of weeks and see how it goes? And he invested no energy in me um, in that time. I remember I went into Andrea one day. I'm like, is he always like this? And and she's like, yeah, pretty much. And it wasn't until, you know, I kept coming in and kept doing whatever he asked me to do, whether it was work a Sunday or go on prune with a crew in the rain or, or whatever, that he became in, engaged in, in understanding where I came from. And that's his personality. And, and once we started a, a dialogue, it was great because he had a rule and that we never talked about what we were doing while we were doing it. You come in, you graft, and you do it. You know, if you have questions, at the end of the day, same thing in the winery. Like, we didn't sit around and swirl wine and say, you know, so, you know, we tasted the wine, made decision, went and, and did it. So during that summer, it was up to me to be there, to, to say, okay, clock out at five o'clock and, you know, Herman would ask once in a while, you want to have a glass of wine? Absolutely. You know, and so I would be there till 6.30 or 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, just talking with him. And I asked him in August if he could make a recommendation for me. All right. Like yeah. Now that I've been now here Now I've while. been here. I've, I, yeah. I think I've proven that I'm really serious about this. And he said, let me think about this. I, I know some people. I, I have a, a friend in the Rheingau who you might work really well with. And shortly after that, his assistant, who had been there for 10 years, who I'd worked with very closely through my time, my, my first few months there, he told Herman that he was leaving, that he was, and this was right in the beginning of harvest. Um, so Herman, I, I knew that I was going to stay through harvest and that after harvest, we would figure something out. But then his assistant left, like gone. So the, the balance, mid-harvest on, it was just Herman and myself doing all the picking and all the processing. And How many acres are we talking about? At this time, it was 62 acres. Which seems like a lot to me. Yeah, so we probably had, we probably had 40 acres in, but it, you know, we would harvest during the day and then press at night and then repeat. You know? And that experience answered my question about what I wanted to do, that I didn't want to go back to school and learn winemaking, that I had opportunity there to train under him in a very serious practical training. And I just had to put my time in to do that. Another funny story is, is when it came to bottling in March of that year, 
I kind of looked around like, well, it's just Herman and myself still. Um, who's going to, you know, Herman, how are we going to do this? And he, he, grabbed, the, <laughs> he grabbed the bottling line manual. And it was, it was an Italian-made bottling line. The manual was in English, but it was broken English from Italian. No pictures. And he handed it to me and said, you know, you're going to run the bottling line. I'm like, what do you mean I'm going to run the bottling line? So I took this home and read it. I came back. I said, Herman, I don't understand what this is saying. He goes, oh, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. So, you know, he had been just enough removed from bottling because his assistant had been doing it for probably six years that he knew enough to turn the machine on and, and, you know, the valves and stuff, but cleaning the corker and cleaning the line and taking parts off, you know, that was all trial and error at that point. And a lot of what I did for that next year was kind of trial, trial and error on my own to say, okay, I can do this. I, I, I'm going to prove to Herman that I can do this, whether it's setting up filters or cleaning tanks or pruning this row of, of vines. It was still proving to Herman that I can do this. I mean, it kind of feels like you got the chance again, right? Like the family farm was no longer available for you. So you kind of were given this chance to be important in a, in a place, in a way that was, you know, you, not a lot of young people would have gotten and you, you kind of went right into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my, uh, my wife and I were planning on moving to Italy. I went to Herman and said, I need another experience. I, I want to go somewhere and, and get more experience. And, and he convinced me to stay. My wife was training as a jeweler. Her boss at the time convinced her to stay. But at, at that point, I said, we, I need to take hold of something. I need to feel like there's a path. There's something that I'm working towards. And that really got our, our discussion going about where Herman was and where he wanted to be and where my wife and I were career-wise and where we wanted to be. And, you know, Herman is not married, doesn't have kids. He was trying to figure out how to move the winery on, how to move it to a, another generation or what to do with this estate that he had created. And for three years, he and I talked about it and figured out a path forward. So we, we ended up taking over the winery in 2007. And I, th I think our timing was remarkably right for both of us. I feel like he had the confidence in me to to represent him because his name was on the label and it was going to remain on the label. And, and that was something very difficult for him to get past that his name was, he knew his name was going to remain on the label, but now he wasn't in control over what was going in that bottle on day one of me running the winery. Because it does seem like even to the end there, he was growing the business. He did, he did a lot of work in, in 99-203. Nursery work, new plantings. Um, in 1999, he bought the Magdalena and the Yosef site. So that added, that took him from 42 acres up to the 62, 62 and a half acres. But I, I think after 2003, 2003 was an awful winter. And after that winter, he was tired because here's another round of, well, we, we lost vines and and I think that takes a toll on you over 30 years of, of doing something. I mean, he, he wasn't ready to throw in the towel, but he was ready to find a, a path for him again. So I know a lot of people who make wine and a, a lot of people who learn from other winemakers, but I actually don't know a lot of people who work nurseries or like source vine material or, you know, do a lot of grafting work on their own. So what did you pick up from Herman on that side? The level of detail, I think, that goes into producing plants, you can take that to, to viticulture, you could take that to winemaking, but there's a level of detail um, from, because it's, it's a, a two-year cycle. I mean, you're sourcing material, you're growing your material in the vineyard, in a vineyard setting, selecting it, grafting it, growing a season, and then harvesting it. So you're, you're two years in. If you mess up one of the details in there, you're going to have a poor success rate. You're going to have not high quality plants. You're going to have fewer plants available. And it, it, it's a big investment at the beginning to source material, to have the labor in it, to do all the grafting, to plant, set up your fields. That by not focusing on the details of it, 
you can get yourself in, in serious trouble. And that's something I still think through today. Especially now we're taking orders from the nursery. In 2001, 2002, there, we didn't have a lot of orders in hand. So we were grafting on speculation. And now it's, it's very different. We are, I'm taking orders for 2018 and 2019, lining up material. Grafting on speculation, whatever your take is, that's what it is. That's what you have to sell. When you're grafting for orders, you need to hit those numbers because customers expect their plans. Especially now, clean material is, is very tight. And why is that? Is because it takes a while to become clean? or There's a transition in the industry to get to the cleanest plant material possible. And now the nursery industry is changing its method of operating. It's, it's focusing on virus testing and indexing plants. Not that that wasn't there, but actual testing of, of plants versus just visual inspections. There's also some new viruses. California is dealing with some, some new viruses that we're hoping not to see out in other, other states. That creates a, a panic um, around the industry. Well, how clean are, your, are our vines? How clean is the material that you're sending us? And we've gone into a mode of really virus testing and indexing every single plant that we take cuttings from. It's extremely labor-intensive We've done it over four years now, but what we have to be comfortable with as a nursery is that what I'm grafting and selling to customers is as clean as we can possibly get it, as virus-free as we can possibly get it. And and the indexing, and because a lot of nurseries are going through this, their stock has been diminished. And a lot of the new material that's at UC Davis is in very high demand, and there's not a lot of it. So it's taking a while for the industry to gear back up with this new material, especially in very fast-growing markets, um, Michigan and, and Virginia and North Carolina, markets that are really vibrant at the moment. We're having a hard time servicing their vine needs. So there have been you know, documented cases, especially in the West Coast, where people were like, oh, we thought this was Petit Syrah you know, in Sturif, or we thought this was Pinot Blanc, but it's not, it's, it's Melon and that kind of thing. And so is that the issue that people are purchasing a brand name or at least a known quantity grape variety and afraid that they're going to get something else that's not that? That's not as big an issue as it was probably 20, 25 years ago. Even cuttings that Herman received, rootstock he received from a source in California, he planted it, he'd been grafting from it, and it was sold to him as SO4. It was actually 5C. Now, they're, they're very close. They're not that far off. But, you know, you don't want to be selling wrong material. <laughs> and the varietal thing, that's a visual inspection. I mean, you can walk through your vineyard and say, okay, you know, what's that, those red grapes over there in this block of Riesling, you know? That is less of an issue than it was, certainly. But... The cleanliness and, and the virus issue, testing is, is what's going to clean up this industry, not just visual inspection. So again, from, from a nursery standpoint, look at it as our company with vineyards and winery and, and nursery going on, we're pulling plants out of our own production. I want to make sure that our plants that we're planting are, are virus-free. And, and one, one thing that we are very interested in, in, in going through this method of of indexing and selecting is, is also looking at some of our very old blocks and taking cuttings off of some vines that have been in the ground for 40 years and saying, well, what's special about these plants versus those plants? And so we're, we're doing that with, uh, with Chardonnay and with Riesling. Plant material that Herman brought in in the mid-70s is fantastic material. It doesn't necessarily have a clone to it. A lot of vineyards and wineries are what we call clone crazy, just looking for that one specific material because they think it's, it, it will give them that specific flavor. And, and, and it, it does in a way, but there's a, it's much more complex than that. As, it, you know, as you talk about sense of place and one vine planted here versus there. But starting with very good quality material, 
we're taking out these these old blocks and saying that Chardonnay has an inherent quality to it, and that Riesling has an inherent quality to it. What makes those special? So we're we're propagating those, putting them in new blocks, and then taking cuttings off of of that. So have there been revelations about why something would be good or family groups that have come out of that or other revelations that have come out of it during that process? Two things, specifically with the, the Chardonnay and the Riesling. One, I've walked through this old Chardonnay block and, and there are vines that have a very distinct ripeness to them versus all the vines around them. The aromas are different, the texture is different, and... I've found out of about 10,000 plants, I've found around 18 vines that have that unique and taste them for three vintages now and said, yep, those vines are unique to themselves. Now, I know they're Chardonnay, so it's not like there's something random in there. Not like it's Muscat or, you know, Chenin or something different. Um, We've isolated those plants and are grafting off of those. That's really interesting. And they're, they are from the original plant. So was was there just some other material in there or have these plants changed course? Um, within the Riesling, we're looking for vines that have showed to produce regardless of weather conditions. So vines coming out in 2014 and 15 that had what we would say full crop when all the vines around it had seriously diminished crop levels something special about those plants. Maybe it's just where they're grown. Maybe within those five feet, it was warmer for some reason, but there's something special about it. And so we've isolated about 60 plants out of 17,000 that had full crop and looked like normal, normal plants, even coming off of a winter that was minus 14 and propagating these plants and saying, what is unique about those? Have they gained an, an inherent hardiness that, their brothers and sisters around them haven't. <laughs> Do certain grape varieties tend to be more stable than others? Certain varieties tend to mutate faster. Um, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay to a certain extent. Riesling is fairly stable. Um, there, there's a lot of clonal selections within Riesling, but nothing like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So you would say that Riesling is a fairly stable varietal versus, say, Gewürztraminer and Pinot. So to see that change within a, a Chardonnay block maybe isn't isn't uh, odd or, or strange. That's how selections are have been made. You know, whether you're sitting in Burgundy or whether you're in on the Mosel, the proper method of selecting vines was you just watch plants over over a number of years, six or seven years, and identify it, tag it, and say that's the attribute that I'm looking for. Does it show it next year and the year after and year after? That's how selections have been, have been made. In the nursery business, I mean, you know, you say there's scarcity and you have to hit certain targets for people, but is there, you know, a lot of demand in certain categories and no demand in others? And are those sometimes surprising realities, like the amount of demand or lack of demand for something? It's interesting. A lot of the industries are emerging like New York. Um, they might have tradition in grape growing, but they are moving towards certain varietals that they have that have marketability or they or growers feel fit their climate. In a lot of cases, you still have Merlot planted next to Gewürztraminer planted next to Gruner Veltliner, which to the Europeans is weird. But that that's all part of looking at a site and, and trying to figure out what varietal. Some sometimes it's just because, well, I have a plot of land and Gruner selling and Merlot selling and Gewürztraminer selling, so plant more of it. And I think w- what we're doing in the Finger Lakes is really trying to find those matches. And I think that our industry is is set up very much like Rheinhessen, where we have vineyard blocks that have tons of varietals in them. And eventually we will start moving and gravitating towards very certain, very specific varietals. But it takes a while to plant something and realize the grapes and and see them over a number of vintages and then come back and say, you know, I probably shouldn't have planted that there. Um, But I think a lot of these regions are are going through that, just like like in the Finger Lakes. 
do you see areas where they really are 10 years held back or so in what they want to do because they can't get the material? Like, is there a desire to change the makeup of a region and they, they can't? I don't think the regions are m- moving that quickly. People are experimenting, but on small levels, you know, 100 vines here, 50 vines there. That quantity of plant material is fairly easy to get. Where we're being held back, like I had mentioned on, on the virus and, and virus index plants and, and clean plants, if someone wants a block of Merlot, a new block of Merlot, getting enough plant material to fill that specific order of Merlot 348, that, that's tricky for us at the moment. Doing a couple small plantings here and there of Gamay or a specific Gruner clone, that's not too difficult at the moment. You're saying that there's more demand sometimes than, than you have stock, but does it surprise you how few nurseries there are in the United States that more people wouldn't rise to meet this demand? Because it seems to me like the, the number has shrunk, not grown. It, it certainly has, has decreased. But because of how intense the, the nursery business is and how, how specific of an industry it is, I think there, there's been a lot of consolidation. But to gear up and start producing and have the know-how to do that, it takes a long time. It, it really does. And having gone through that and, and trained and, and, and know what to look for, and you know, we, we still, still get things wrong. I should have only had that material in water for five hours, not 10 hours. You know, you, you live and learn. You hope you don't make those mistakes too often. But that's a, that's a feeling. You know, it's, a, it's, it's something at your fingertips that you have to be intimately involved with. And it's, it's a very, very specific trade. It's funny because, you know, when you're a writer, you're like, oh, you know, there's, there's four wineries in Canada that are making great Chardonnay, you know, maybe we should write an article about how Chardonnay is becoming a big thing in Canada. Like, you know, that's like a trend piece, but like you could see like, you know, there's four wineries that ordered Chardonnay in Canada in 20 years. It's going to be a trend piece. That's right. You know, it's a little earlier look at the same thing almost in a way. Absolutely. Watch out for Lemberger's in Virginia. Yeah. Is that that a true (laughs) true story? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, Virginia is a really interesting market. Just there's so many different climates and and soil types. But again, there's small pockets that are going after Gruner and Lemberger, and there's pockets that are planting Viognier and and Cabernet Sauvignon and Petit Verdot like crazy. So, you know, we see that in still in, in the Finger Lakes where you have growers who are just driving on Pinot Noir and their neighbor is, you know, I'm not planting any Pinot, you know, I'm only going after Riesling and Chardonnay. So you still see that within a very finite area. Um, And to see it through the lens of the nursery is a lot of fun to see that because to your point, you get to see a trend maybe five, six, 10 years before it's actually happening. And, and now I'm, I'm trying to get plant material for this trend that might be, you know, sweeping the nation in 2030. <laughs> so when I think of, uh, you know, wine production, some of the things that historically have made a big difference are like temperature controlled cellars with air conditioning, stainless steel. You know, there's things that are, have been like for good or for ill, they've been a big deal in winemaking. And so what are some of the things that have been a big deal in the nursery trade? Cause I, I simply don't know. The fundamental is is back to the mother plants selecting good quality material. That is that's fundamental. You can have any plant material and you know a Riesling vine and, and some rootstock and, and graft it. And if if it's hasn't been grown properly, you know, not overcropped and, and there's it's doesn't have uh, powdery mildew and, and botrytis you're still not guaranteed that you're going to have a good graft. But those kind of checklist things of, you know, clean wooded material, low yielding, those are the foundation of creating good, good plants. Other than that, it's, it's timing of making sure that you're grafting on time, that it's being calloused properly, 
that you get in the field on time before, you know, it gets too warm. Timing is, is critical. And, and we see this in the, in the finger legs being in, in the nursery industry in the finger legs where you see a cold night on the horizon and you say, well, if I don't get my grafting wood in before that cold night, then there goes all my grafting material for this year. So 2013, 2014, we were scrambling over between Christmas and New Year's getting plant material in before we saw minus eight or minus nine, because every, you don't know exactly what that kill temperature is, but you, from a nursery standpoint, you don't want to be wrong because if you bring plant material in and it already has 25% bud kill, well, your take your is already down 25% right before you even start grafting. And, and those are critical things that, that you have to be aware of in a cool climate like we're in. Um, you know, California does and Oregon don't have to really worry about that. That it's not part of their idea of growing grapes or, or, or producing nursery stock. That's always on our mind in the Finger Lakes, always. But is there an advantage to having a nursery in the Finger Lakes? Seeing the plant material that we're working with versus maybe some material that we get from somewhere else um, that hasn't gone through our cooler growing conditions and the wood has, hasn't hardened off like, like it does in, in the Finger Lakes and in New York, you see a very distinct difference in the grafting material when I bring material in from warmer climates versus the cool climate. And a lot of growers that we work with believe that there is a inherent hardiness to vines grown. There is no research that backs that up. But whether you just believe in it or, or you actually see the results of it in, in a vineyard setting, there is, there is something about that hardiness, built-in hardiness that, you know, we, we can't quantify. So you're saying if a guy grows up in Alaska and then he moves to Florida and it's an unusually cold day for Florida, maybe it's like 70 degrees, he's not complaining that it's cold. Right. And what makes a good graft? What about a graft is good or bad? So you're taking two pieces. You're taking the rootstock and the scion. So the rootstock is native material to the U.S. that the, most of it's been selected and propagated in Europe, um, and now we're we're growing it here again. The scion is you know your varietal Chardonnay, Riesling. Connecting those together via the grafting process, you can do it by hand. There's little machines that we use, semi-automated machines. That connection. It's just like a, a wound that you have, you know, you're going to scar, and you'll have a callus on that spot. With the vine, you want that whole callus to be there. You want that whole graft to be calloused. And if it's not, and you go to check the plant, the top of the plant will just break off. That's obviously a, a poor graft. But when you can take your thumb and push on the top and the plant stays together, you typically have a good graft. The other part is the root system, making sure that that rootstock has grown nice, full roots and is, isn't few root hairs and, you know, nice full root system. That allows the plant, when you plant it, to take off, to really thrive within those first few months. Going into a cool climate, being planted in a cool climate, you want plants really healthy and in good shape going into our cold winters. You know, if, if vines are just struggling to survive, you take a, a much higher loss in, in the winter. As someone who makes wine, what do you think is important going back to the nursery level? As a winemaker, my experience with running a nursery and, and vineyards, it all ties back into what we see on the press pad and, you know, the what we're selecting from fruit in the vineyards and, and saying, is this the fruit that I want to be working with? Well, as a nursery, we have the ability in a way to, to change that, to find more interesting material or take specific graphs out of our block because we see variation. That always creates a, a, a very interesting discussion. And, and I think we operate within the winery under those under that thought process. I mean, we have barrels right now in the winery of Cabernet Franc 
214 clone versus Cabernet Franc 623 versus Cabernet Franc 327, any winemaker could do that, buy the vines, plant them, have this experience and, and do it. What we're doing now is taking that information right back to January when I start talking to talking to growers and saying, well, what, what is the difference between your Cabernet Franc clones? Well, it just so happens that I have these in barrels and we're tasting them and I can tell you exactly the difference between them. There is not another nursery that can supply that information. Now, it's, it's not over every varietal, every clone that we work with, but we're getting there slowly. But it's very exciting for me as a winemaker to be able to make those selections and then turn around in January and graft it when I really like some plant material and say, you know, okay, maybe in three years, we're going to have more of this material. And on the other side of it, the nursery has really benefited from having that information. And and this is something that, you know, I saw Herman work with where, you know, working with the different clones of Chardonnay and saying, well, you know, 95 versus 96 or different Pinot Noir clones. It really does help to be able to supply that information from a, a practical standpoint and not just say, oh, you know, I heard that, you know, 777 Pinot and 667 are different, you know. Well, what is the difference? Because, you know, people are are really interested in, in that need to have that information. I'm at a crossroads in that because what we're looking for in the in the winery is is not defining 239 and 198 Riesling. It's saying this Riesling is from this site. And yet, from the nursery standpoint, clonal selection and, and plant selection is very important from a, from a selling standpoint, from a customer relationship standpoint. Magdalena Vineyard, which is 10 miles north of the winery, that has four different clones of Riesling in it. And in 2005, 2007, we did clonal trials. And in the end, we blended them and, and used them for very specific reasons. And at some point we said, you know what, let's not look at the vineyard from a clonal standpoint. Even though we know that they, they exist, let's walk through and taste and just make sure that what we want to be selecting that day is the right reasoning for that day. Not, well, we have to pick clone 90 or we have to cl- pick 239 because that's where it fits in. Um, let the vineyard be be what it's going to be and say this Riesling, whatever it is, whatever clone it is, this is going to be for dry Riesling. This is going to be for late harvest. Okay. We're selecting for reserve now, regardless of what the clonal selection is. So do you see shared characteristics that go beyond some of the family groups that I would normally think of? Like I think of the Pinot family as a family. I think of certain Piemontese grape varieties as a family, like Frasia related to Nebbiolo, for example. Are there times where grape varieties that you wouldn't expect that don't seem ostensibly to be in the same family share a characteristic when you're grafting them? Givertsmere and Gruner ripen in a very similar state. And, and seeing that because they are planted side by side in, in one of our blocks, they will ripen and then drop their acid very quickly. And so those are two varietals that, from a vineyard standpoint, I didn't expect to have to run parallel to each other, but they, they certainly do. And, and that's, I think, one, one thing that we have, and I've mentioned this before, about working with a lot of varietals. We've, we've worked with Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Sauvignon in the Finger Lake setting. We work with Gewürztraminer and Pinot Noir, and we're progressing now to a point where we can say, you know what, I don't need to plant a Merlot. I, I've, we've already trialed that. And, you know, I'm going to shy away from Sauvignon Blanc on, on these sites and start to hone in on what we really feel works best. Just this, this past year, we ripped out two and a half acres of Pinot Noir that Herman planted in 1999 and an acre of Gewürztraminer planted in the same, within the same vineyard setting because I feel like Pinot ripens too quickly on this site. And we've had really great success with Cabernet Franc. So maybe this is a Cabernet Franc vineyard site versus a Pinot site. I've had to kind of work through that in my mind that, you know, Herman planted this in 1999. 
not that long ago, have we worked this vineyard enough to get to this point to say, you know what, time to rip it out, sorry. And we have, we've made 12 vintages of Pinot Noir off of it. We have enough data to say, you know what, I, I think Pinot belongs somewhere else. And I think Cabernet Franc is really very expressive here. So now we're in that mode of taking it on the chin, ripping the vineyard out and, and replanting. Because there's got to be different things that play into whether it's going to work out, right? Like there's different soil types involved. There's different proximity to the lake involved. Absolutely. And having three big vineyard sites, we kind of run the, the gamut of variation within Seneca Lake between a very cool site at the winery, Herman's original planting, and then Yosef and Magdalena, which are 10 miles north. Very different soil types between them, even soil changes within the vineyard blocks. That has directly impacted what is planted and how we've looked at moving the vineyards forward. Herman at one point had a block of 36 different varieties or clones that was planted in 1977. He and I ripped that out in 2005. And one thing that we thought through in, in ripping that out is saying, you know what? Your old block of Riesling is still doing really well and your old block of Chardonnay is really still producing. Maybe this vineyard site's only for Riesling and Chardonnay. And so all of our new plantings on at the winery at HAW have been Riesling and a couple small blocks of Chardonnay, but those varieties belong there. And then looking 10 miles north, the Yosef Vineyard was planted by the Taylor Wine Company in 1977 and 1978. And they planted Riesling and, and Chardonnay and on this hillside. Chardonnay is a it's a lousy clone four from UC Davis and you know big berries, clusters the size of your head. And we were using that for strictly for sparkling. Because as it ripened, you lost varietal character and became pretty cardboardish. So we use that for sparkling. It fit perfectly for sparkling. But the Yosef Vineyard's also our ripest site. The question that we posed to ourselves was, do you grow sparkling Chardonnay on your ripest vineyard site in a cool climate? And in the end, you know, we said no. You know, there are better sites for Chardonnay that's going to be picked early. And this is better fit for a variety that we want to hang and, and or want ripeness on. So we ripped out two and a half acres of Chardonnay of these beautiful 40-year-old plants and now putting Riesling back in there. But it's interesting that you, you know, you do make these decisions based on how plants are doing. Yes. You know. Absolutely. Which, which it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It could be based on labor flow or what the market wants or what you're really into or, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. You can make your, your planting decisions based on what the winemaker needs or what the marketing team needs to sell. And we've never thought in that, that manner. Certainly, you know, yes, okay, we need more pl- Riesling. Let's plant more Riesling. Or Cabernet Franc selling very well. But we're not going to put Cabernet Franc in at the winery on the cool site because we need Cabernet Franc. We've learned that. We've made these trials and errors to get to a point where, you know, we and we're gravitating towards varietals that we've had experience with. We could certainly sell a lot of Sauvignon Blanc, but there's no way I'm planting Sauvignon Blanc. We are at probably 38 different wines that we make. Part of that is, again, kind of pursuing what what works from what site and, and late harvest from over here or late harvest from there. That keeps the winemaking exciting and, and, and interesting because we're not just saying, well, just blend it into the big tank. You know, why is that tank different? And, and, and we feel we need to bottle that and be able to recreate that, you know, for several vintages. We've built our bottling out of that. I look at our sparkling production and say, you know, we've built our sparkling production out of trial and error and said, you know, Blanc de Blanc barrel fermented versus stainless steel from this vineyard site and that vineyard site. Okay, we have to keep making Blanc de Blanc because it's it's really interesting. So are there things you think like, yep, we tried that and that's in general, I think, not not working for the Finger Lakes? 
Like, are there things that you th- are general takeaways, either because of disease or ripening curves or something else that you're just like, you know, <laughs> you might think, but no. Yes. I mean, we, we've, I look at Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc. Now, there are wineries and there are vineyards that are growing Sauvignon Blanc and Merlot and, and are doing just fine with them. On that site, I've trialed Merlot and, and Sauvignon Blanc and we've grown in and said, you know what? It's just not, it's not working there. Looking at the same question the other way, are there things that you think like, you know, I think, more broadly speaking, that this could be a thing in the Finger Lakes, but it's still in its infancy or hasn't really been tried yet? Varietally, yes. I mean, we planted Gruner and Lemberger in the last um, 15 years. And Gruner is showing itself to not be as hardy as I think a lot of people expected. You, um, and so that's that's an interesting development for us. Blaufrankisch Lemberger is showing great potential. And one thing I've learned with, with Lemberger, Blaufrankisch, is that you can get it ripe pretty easily in the Finger Lakes. To get it varietally unique, you need to give it hang time. And so we were just blending it away into our, our, our red blend for nine vintages. And then 2010, I let it hang a week later and came in and said, wow, you know, what happened with this versus 2008, 2005? Um, and all of a sudden, it was varietally correct versus kind of being a maybe more of a generic red. Um, and since then, we, we've pushed the ripeness on Lemberger. And I think we've, we've figured out how to, how to grow it. But we're also looking at what other varietals have we not planted yet? What else is out there that could potentially belong in the Finger Lakes? You know, there's dozens and dozens of varietals, cool climate varietals, mountain varietals that don't have any experience, any, any pedigree in, in the U.S. So those are things that we've, we've started to think about. And, and we did a, a planting this year with Petit Arvine, and ferment and an old German red called Affenthaler. And just, you know, we put 200 vines in the ground and say, you know, what will this produce? Maybe, maybe nothing. Maybe they just all die this winter. But, you know, we've seen that be part of our history at the winery with Herman planting, bringing in plants, getting plants in the U.S. somehow and, and planting them and, and trialing it and saying, you know, in the end, None of them worked, but you have to go through that process, I think, to answer your question, you know, <laughs> to, to answer your own question about, are we growing what we should be growing? Do you see something where you think to yourself like, oh, that kind of canopy, it, the grape needs that, but it, I can't give it that in the Finger Lakes or something like that? Growing conditions is the factor that we are, are most concerned with. You know, how early does it butt out? Does it harden off going into a winter? Is it cold hardy? Those are pretty basic check, check, check kind of questions. Then you get into, you know, how tight is the cluster? You know, is it prone to betrays? Are the skins thick or thin? That's kind of another level that you can say, well, viticulturally, you know, are we going to have disease pressure? Can we, will it hang through two inches of rain in, in October, you know, that's kind of your, your next set. And those, those are really critical questions when it's saying, well, will that varietal grow or, or not grow? I mean, people have asked me in the finger, like, can I grow Viognier? I'm like, probably wouldn't grow Viognier. Probably not a good idea. You know, people are still, lots of people are, are trialing stuff and, and being, again, being the nursery, get to sift through that information. And I feel like you sift through other information because you, you did a lot of work in like the WSET and studying for the MW. So I feel like in that kind of work, you have um, done a lot of tasting and exploration of other regions and like what they're about. So when you reflect that back into your own region, besides what you just said about some of the fundamentals of what grows in the Finger Lakes, I mean, what do you think about the Finger Lakes? If you were to 
you know, give that presentation on the Finger Lakes for your MW class and you're looking for the same sorts of information that's well known about other regions, but it's maybe less well known about the Finger Lakes because there's maybe fewer wineries or it's more in its infancy as an industry. What is the rundown? I think the rundown is that it is, it's a cool climate, a true cool climate. And that one of our advantages is our variation in soils. Um, how influential the lakes are, proximity to the lake, slope that you're on, all of those things matter greatly when it comes to selecting vineyard sites and and then ultimately styles of wine that you're trying to make off of those bridles and those vineyard sites. I would say the other thing that that I would tell people is the quality of the winemaking is much different than it was 15, 20 years ago. Nothing against the winemakers that were in the region, but I think we've started to really up our game, really improve how we're producing wines. So now that you've kind of, you know, taken the mantle and you've had it for a while now, this is a little over a decade there. And you're in that, that kind of chance where you know, Herman had a second part of his career and you're moving into that second part of your career and life, I think, with the second kid and, and everything. Um, what is important to you? Like, what do you want to do? Looking back at my f- family and growing up and the experience that uh, that my father had and, and, and my mother also growing up on a farm and having my sisters and cousins and and having that homestead. Um, Now I'm starting to appreciate that and and have the ability to continue to build that. Fred Merworth is trying to build a farm that can sustain families, whether that be the family of him and his financial partner or Gewürztraminer and Grüner Thank you very much for being here today. Levy, thank you very much. Fred Merworth of Herman J. Veemer, the winery in the Finger Lakes. He's both the winemaker and a co-owner. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.